Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Planet Positive. Uh, my name is Julian Guderlei. I'm your host today, and today's guest is going to be David Bloom. Welcome, David. Uh, also, we have um, Peter Crane here, the founder of Planet Positive. Peter, if you want to share a word, feel free to jump in. Uh, a bit more about Planet Positive. There's Peter. Yeah. Welcome. Oh, hi. Yeah, good, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. And um, just wanted to say thank you, Samantha, for the lovely meditation and Julian for hosting. And, thank you uh, so everyone, much, both of you, all of you. <laughs> and to everyone that, that is here today to um, share in this week's wisdom and uh, excited to hear uh, David's talk. Thank you. Yeah, a bit more about uh, David Bloom. Um, David is employing regenerative ag tech to improve daily living and is a commercial farmer and cereal entrepreneur. Uh, Bloom is a biofuel pioneer, alternative energy and regenerative ag expert. And so with these words, David, I'm really excited for your presentation, leading us and guiding us into biofuel and pioneering that space. Um, take it away. Well, sure. Um, I guess what I'd like to say is let's, let's remember that not so long ago, we all used the word sustainable. And now we've learned to use the word regenerative. And <clears throat> I've been doing what's called regenerative design since the 70s. And I think I have received the best definition from uh, a, a Blackfoot elder in uh, Montana where I was teaching permaculture. He, uh, he asked the class, uh, what, it, what was this word sustainable they were using? And one of the plucky young college students stood up and said, well, uh, it's to make sure that the generations, seven generations from now, have the same level of resources and, as we have today, that we don't waste anything. And Wilbert, he, he thought about that for a second and he said, well, uh, that sounds pretty good, but when are you going to fix all the stuff you fucked up? This is a very old Indian uh, medicine man. He didn't mince words. So that's the difference between sustainability, which is not letting things get worse, and regeneration, which is we need to repair what we've damaged and amplify it to a much richer and more um, productive uh, version of a healed earth. So I've been looking at th doing things this, this way since the 70s. And since the 70s, we've seen some um, pretty big challenges. We've seen nuclear power uh, first rise and then be checked in its growth, which was a testament to the public demand. We've seen oil being pumped dry almost all over the planet and now desperation setting in. And of course, our climate has been, uh, well, of course, there is no climate change if you watch Fox News, but the rest of us think there is. Uh, and then, of course, we burn the ocean from 4,000 feet below it with, you know, deep water horizon. We've seen things in a lifetime that would have not, would have been remarkable every century in the past. The rate of change has gotten to be very rapid. And now it's time for us to implement change to solve these kinds of things. Now, you know, what's the magnitude of it? 
you know, we all talk about, uh, we have to get all the cars and trucks to, you know, uh, clean up their emissions so we don't pollute our air. But it's a little bit um, daunting to realize that one of these big ships emits more pollutants than 50 million cars a year. And only 15 of those ships equals all the emissions from all the cars and trucks in the world. So it's not just our personal vehicles, it's what we do to get our stuff that's polluting the air with four-story tall engines in the 55,000 ships around the world. And then of the stuff we get, we waste. Look at all that stuff in the landfill that and for me is gold to be made into alcohol. And of course, the, uh, the, the waste products that we dump into our water in the bottom left are usually something that we can make something from and wouldn't be a waste if we only thought of how to use it. And of course, burning our fossil fuels to drive by ourselves to work is a little bit much. But we can change all that. And I, I firmly do believe it and have been changing um, big pro problems with the earth. And I know that once we put our attention on it, it happens quickly. There's no requirement to continue to do things stupidly. So what we're looking at here in the middle of this photo is a woman who's walked maybe six hours to get 100 pounds of wood, which she's carrying home, to cook her food. Now, why should cooking your food endanger your health because four million year four million women a year do die from breathing the wood smoke from cooking and why should it why should it level forests just to be able to cook food when there are so many other ways that might be possible to do it so when we look at um, how we go about providing our energy it all comes from one place ultimately in our in our experience and that's the sun so when energy comes from the sun, it takes many forms and Bloom Industries has been harvesting those forms through agriculture, through various kinds of, um, you know, uh, uh, ways of impounding solar energy via plants and repairing the damage done to the planet. Now, when it comes to energy, which is really the main subject today, is, is alcohol turns out to be the, the Bitcoin of energy. In other words, it's the, the way of storing value uh, that plants produce for us. So plants go ahead and breathe in carbon dioxide, as you, that's the stuff we don't want in the air, and they take in sunlight for their energy source, and combined with water, you get carbohydrates. Carbo is carbon dioxide, hydrate is water. So sunlight is, or sugar is really trapped sunlight. And it's the basic energy unit of all life. Of course, animals eat that trapped sunlight and are, you know, aren't given nutrition. But we can also power our energy systems with that trapped sunlight. So in the case of these sugars or carbohydrates, let's like say from sugar cane or from corn currently, it's possible for us to go ahead and ferment that material by adding yeast to a solution and it produces alcohol and water. And it has for thousands of years. Uh, we've even found uh, vessels of alcohol in the uh, tombs of Egypt and of course all throughout Rome. 
So when we're looking at uh, alcohol, it's one of these things that once it's made has no shelf life, it's antiseptic, and in fact, that's why it makes such good sanitizer, but it's, it's you know, powerfully contains solar energy. When you burn alcohol in a car, as a fuel, for instance, the alcohol explodes when it combines with oxygen. And what comes out the tailpipe? Well, the same things that went in, carbon dioxide and water. And those recycle back to the atmosphere so that plants can make them into next year's fuel. What drives the car down the road is the exploding solar energy that pushes the car down the road. And now nature goes ahead and reabsorbs the car's exhaust, carbon dioxide and water, makes next year's carbohydrates, which we make into alcohol. And so we have a truly circular economy of energy around our fuel versus taking oil from underground, burning it and consuming the oxygen from the air, and then throwing it into the atmosphere. It's very different when we do things in sync with the cycles we know work. Now, the plant that we do these things in is commonly called a distillery, but there's a lot more to it than that when we design it. It's a biorefinery. We can use many things to take, bring in the car, uh, carbohydrates we need to solve our problems. Sweet sorghum looks a lot like sugarcane, but grows in dry, dry areas. Uh, we can be looking at food waste, like at the bottom of the um, uh, slide here, which shows all these things that, you know, uh, have very strict um, descriptions of what people want to eat, and we throw away the west, the, the least uh, attractive parts. So like where I am here in Watsonville, uh, a half a billion pounds of strawberries don't end up in the boxes that go to the market, they end up being thrown away. That's all bunches of sugar and other products we can make with that waste, so-called waste. Waste isn't actually in my vocabulary. It's not something that I believe is a truism. So if you look at the top, we could talk about kelp farming. Now, I worked on this back in the 70s for the California Energy Commission. And by spreading nets on the surface of the ocean, uh, we can grow kelp in new areas that are deeper than kelp naturally grows when it attaches to the bottom. And those kelp farms can absorb enormous amounts of carbon dioxide where, uh, and, and take all kinds of uh, human pollution, sewage, out of the water and oxygenate, make fresh the, the ocean once again. And it's an enormous habitat for schooling fish and for the food for other parts of the food chain. We could actually be doing the ocean a favor by farming kelp. So kelp is uh, uh, an incredible source of fertilizer for land. So that's a good thing because the flow of fertility on the planet is from the land with rain down into rivers and out into the ocean. It's thought of as a one-way trip. We're washing all the wonderful nutrients out of our soil and into the ocean. That doesn't need any extra nutrients. Well, the ocean gives back, if we choose to design properly, all those nutrients back through kelp, which we can then you know, uh, powder and send back up the slope, out to Montana, where it can, again, fertilize weed or whatever. 
so that we're returning on a much bigger cycle the nutrients we've been using. But we can immobilize nutrients where they are. And that's the subject of the project we're about to embark on in New Zealand. You'll see cattails at the bottom. Now, cattails are a marsh plant. And what's very remarkable about cattails is it stops the nitrate pollution of water. Now, water gets full of nitrate from chemical fertilizer, from animal manure, or from human sewage. So nitrates are what are the most significant pollutants of fresh water. To do something about that strategically, well, let's look at nitrates as a valuable product that why should we throw it away? Why should we waste all those nitrates? So we don't. What you'll see at our place is that we have a cattail marsh. And this is something a lot of work was done on myself and several others uh, in the 70s, where we measured how much of the nitrate and water we could absorb using cattails in a marsh. And it was an enormous amount. We could take nitrates down from 3,000 milligrams per liter uh, all the way down to five parts per five mil, um, milligrams per liter. The federal limit considered a definition of fresh water is 10 milligrams. So we could take raw, nasty sewage and run it through a methane digester to get the energy and then put it through a cattail marsh to recover all the fertilizer value and release fresh water back for whatever use. That kind of thinking is what gets us to the future that we don't look at things as a one-way trip from manufacturing to processing to throwing away the waste. We say that every waste, every surplus has a purpose and nothing goes to that word waste. Nature doesn't do it that way. So we start looking at where we can get this stuff and the food processing industry is a big part of it. Uh, the food processing industry only takes a fraction of the stuff we make into uh, food and then throws away the rest. Now, this is an interesting, a little bit busy drawing, but, but here's the thrust of it. We grow corn, roughly 70 million acres of corn. That sounds like a lot, but we have over a billion acres of farmland, but 70 million acres of corn to feed cows. Now, one would argue, why don't you just let cows go ahead and eat, uh, you know, eat the corn in the field? Why do we, you know, harvest it and dry it and grind it and put it in silos and move it to feed lots and do all these very complicated things? And it's because of a systemic problem in who owns land and who owns the, the distribution of the food. So the guys making the meat they don't own the land, they're big corporations. So we spend all this energy making a feed product for corn that they can store for an indefinite period and meter it out as they want in their tiny little feedlots. Rather than growing a crop for cattle, they can eat in place, leave their manure behind right there in the field to fertilize the next crop and keep that circle going. So that's not what we have. We have this industrial system. So Corn goes in, and basically the way it works now is we don't feed the dry corn very often anymore to cattle. It now becomes fermented, distilled to remove the starch in the corn, 
because starch is the carbohydrate, to become alcohol. And what's left over is everything that was valuable about a corn plant except for the sugary starchy stuff. That's all the minerals and vitamins and everything else. And so that becomes what we call dried distiller's feed. And now that has replaced corn as the main feed for most farm animals in the United States. And that feed is three times as concentrated as protein. It costs one third as much to ship. And it's actually um, healthier for animals to eat because uh, animals like uh, cattle cannot digest starch at all. They poop it out. So it's a completely screwed up system. But there's a couple of components I want you to notice. One, we get alcohol. That's important. Two, the other part is all that stuff that's left over, the, the liquids left over after we've taken the alcohol out is the, the corn mash that's been de-alcoholized. That has everything that was in the plant that wasn't sugar. And that is incredible fertilizer. I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit when it comes to our small scale system. Now, you know, when you want to, you know, and we don't use corn, by the way, in our process, um, because the way they grow corn makes it unattractive ecologically as something to make alcohol from. But let's talk about growing stuff now. So we've got this great juice left over after fermenting. And uh, when you talk about the food people need, it's a tiny acreage compared to what we do to feed cattle. It takes 10 pounds of corn to make one pound of um, cow, and that means nine pounds of manure. So is that a good you know, conversion? No, it isn't. So when we talk about land for humans, we would need maybe a tenth of the land we currently use for animal agriculture to support humans. The United States alone could supply the world with vegetables and, uh, and other human foods and leave most of the rest of the rest of the world alone if we did things the kind of ways that we do them at uh, our place in Watsonville. So, so we go ahead and uh, do many things. First, we take the alcohol we make and we upgrade it by purification to pharmaceutical alcohol. And you'll see the plant there on the left. Uh, we're now at pharmaceutical alcohol, we can use it for anything. We can make it into, use it for making drugs. We can use it for uh, sanitizer. We can uh, use it for um, beverage, of course. And you could even use it as a fuel. But if you make only fuel grade alcohol, like the big plants do in the Midwest, it's got a lot of yeast byproducts in it. Yeast make all kinds of chemicals, not just alcohol. And those can interfere with the um, making of medicines. And so since we're getting more and more into more rudimentary plant-based medicines versus extracting them and then putting them in pills, this becomes very important for small scale pharmaceutical companies. So we get a lot of things out of the alcohol plant. Um, we get a lot of extra warm water. So in our farm, we use the water to literally heat the soil like it's a warm floor in a house with tubes underneath with hot water running through it. And because of that, we're heating plants where they need it versus heating the air of the greenhouse. We save 90% of the energy 
And that energy is surplus energy left over from making the alcohol. So we have 20, you know, uh, 365 day year production of food in our greenhouses at, uh, at our farm. Now we make energy also here. So we have the energy to light if we need to modify day length, which for some crops is really important. We also take the carbon dioxide byproduct. Remember the earlier slide where alcohol becomes when it's burned carbon dioxide and water. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing about the new cannabis industry. You know, the taxing agencies didn't exactly trust them to honestly report what their yield was or what their sales were, you know, because uh, let's say the history of the industry. So the taxing agencies came up with a, a way of figuring out how to tax without having to know those things. And that's by the square foot of the greenhouse. Well, it turns out if you use carbon dioxide, the thing that plants like to breathe at a level higher than it comes naturally in the air, they can triple the amount of food or flowers that they produce per square foot. So the smart ecological entrepreneurs in the canna world can offset the impact of taxes by two thirds by just doing the simple thing of recycling the carbon dioxide, which we provide, you know, uh, adjacent to our alcohol plant. So, um, Tom, you have a comment for me on the side? Uh, just, okay, take a look here. So what I wanna tell you is about what the business is, and then I wanna turn you over to Chris, I think, to um, lay out uh, the, the CFO point of things. What we're doing here is squeezing every bit of value out of our raw material. And what we're doing is bringing in uh, fully certified organic uh, food waste from Latin America. This is uh, uh, otherwise known as molasses uh, from the production of sugar. And we take that uh, and essentially make rum. We ferment it all the sugar is removed, and then we have the byproduct of the sugarcane plant. Now, you gotta think about what this sugarcane plant does. It's, it's a fantastic thing. It has roots that go down 18 feet to mine for water and minerals. It grows up to 20 feet tall. This is, this is not your grandfather's lawn, let me tell you. This is one big grass, and it has incredible growth factors in it. So when we go ahead and make our alcohol, we have all those growth factors in the byproduct at the end. And that forms the basis of the fertilizer we're now producing. Now, when we add to that base amount, some other aspects of alcohol production like kelp solution, where we are now harvesting kelp off the California coast. We uh, dry it and extract it and put it into our fertilizer. Uh, which gives us everything except for the nitrogen and 90 different trace nutrients that um, are coming out of the ocean and back to the land in a circle of fertilizer that needs to be repeated. We need something to extract all that stuff we've dumped in the ocean, the good stuff, and get it back. And fertilizer does that from uh, kelp from fertilizer. That offsets fossil fuel fertilizer tremendously and stops the mining of things like phosphate and potassium. The other things we put in it are uh, places where the earth has concentrated nutrients. There's an area of Utah 
that produces an incredibly diverse amount, amount of um, inputs, input minerals, and it's called azomite. And it has been well discovered by uh, the people in the cannabis business. So we add that into this uh, fertilizer, but that's only the start. Those are like the minerals. Soil and in regeneration in general, we talk about soil as a living thing. And living things mean they're made up of things that are alive. So the soil is made up of fungi, uh, you know, tremendous amount of fungi, some bacteria, and of course, there's actually little creatures in the soil too, like earthworms. But what we do in our fertilizer is we put in the bacteria, fungi that plants need to thrive in the soil and to inoculate a soil to become like a forest soil in our fertilizer. So we've found a way of taking not just the value of alcohol to replace fossil fuels, but the fertilizer, which is an enormous amount of energy and oil used to make chemical fertilizer, we've replaced that with a far superior and biological product, which regenerates the soil rapidly. Uh, I have corn growing in my greenhouse right now that's 15 feet tall, and we didn't add any fertilizer this year, just from last year's. So uh, we need things, uh, yes, we need things other than fuel and uh, pharmaceutical alcohol. Um, electricity is a big issue. People don't realize it, but we are always running at the very edge of running out of electricity. It's quite a dance to keep the power, keep power on. So what we have developed over time is, uh, and we're implementing it now with uh, uh, large grows, cannabis grows, because they're like small towns, the amount of energy they used, is a way of integrating carbon dioxide, I mean, uh, my apologies, I'm joking, had alcohol to be able to power the town, you might say, of a million uh, square foot, um, you know, medical, medical grow. So in the center of the drawing, we have a 250 kilowatt micropower generator. Okay, so that's an engine turning an electrical generator. When you burn the fuel inside the engine, it produces several things. Mechanical energy to turn the generator. It also produces waste heat in the form of exhaust and hot water. And of course, when you burn ethanol, just like with gasoline, you end up getting carbon dioxide. But this carbon dioxide doesn't have any poisonous petroleum stuff in it. So that carbon dioxide goes into the greenhouse, triples the growth. The hot water is used to heat the soil underneath for the time of year where it's not tropical, because of course, Ken is a tropical um, uh, plant. Uh, we have hot water in addition to that, that goes back into the production of alcohol and is recycled. Um, and we're able to go ahead and provide electricity to all the houses around the plant, whether they're residences or schools or whatever. And, you know, the idea is we can provide everything that our society needs by plugging in photosynthesis in the way of making sugars and starches from the sun, simply making them into alcohol and then properly, intelligently designing every possible use of that and its co-products. And that's what we're doing here at, at uh, our site. 
in Watsonville and we welcome you to come visit it. But, you know, good ideas are only good ideas until you bring the economics to the idea. And without good economics, no idea goes anywhere. So our, uh, our Chief Financial Officer, uh, Chris Fure, would like to talk a little about the financial benefits of what it is we're doing. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Um, uh, excellence, by the way, as always. And wanted to share just a little bit of historical knowledge to couple with what Dave just said. So when we began building our fossil our plants in our biorefinery in um, Watsonville, we began it as a fuel company, which is why we're called Monterey Bay Renewable Fuel. Um, and our plan was to help um, replace uh, school buses and trucks who were running on diesel with alcohol to, to reduce um, their carbon footprint. Um, but as you know, when COVID occurred, something two things happened. Um, diesel, uh, um, demand went down, which is the upper left um, um, graph there, and pharmaceutical grade alcohol went up, which is the bottom right graph. And the reason why the pharmaceutical grade alcohol went up is because it was used for skin sanitizer. Um, so if we could go to the next slide. So what we basically did was we switched our business model from producing um, biodiesel fuel uh, or I should say bio, or I should say diesel replacement fuel um, to producing sanitizer to meet the immediate COVID demand. And now we recognize, of course, this demand is going to continue for several years. Um, so we switched our, our, our business model a little bit, and now we're promoting the brand Bloom Organics because we're not only producing organic sanitizer and, of course, organic alcohol, but we're also producing organic fertilizer. And so we have two projects going. On the right side is our Watsonville plant. And you'll see right now that we are now in our Series B round and we're basically in the process of raising 4 million because we now have a USDA guaranteed debt um, contribution of 13.3 million. So we are going forward with our five-year model and we're gonna be calculated to um, generate $422 million in revenue as, um, as which is what we are now offering during our Series B. Um, if you go to the left side of the screen, you'll see our more ambitious project, which we're now working with, with a number of investors, and that is we're going to build 12 5 million gallon plants up and down the California corridor, which is California Highway I-99. Why? Because organic waste is now becoming a burden. It's being taxed in terms of its, um, its um, you are getting rid of it. And so therefore we can take that organic waste and turn it into commo successful commodities. So in that situation, we'll be raising five, $200 million in private equity with a USDA guaranteed debt um, offer of 300 million. So in that larger project, that will be the angel round that we'll be pushing up soon. But with that said, I just wanna give you the lay of what our investment opportunities are. Um, I want you all to know that MBRF doesn't need money because we are self-financing, but yet um, we do recognize that people get excited about what David says, and therefore we, so instead of self-financing, we can allow in a little bit more money if people want to participate. And if you do, just go ahead and contact me um, or Bloom in general, and we can have a discussion about it. But um, Dave, do you want to go ahead and start a Q&A? I think now's a good time.
Absolutely. We just uh, muted David again. So maybe unmute. Thank you, Chris, for sharing that overview as well. And if there are any questions, um, let's, let's um, make sure you unmute yourself and ask them or write them in the chat. Hey guys, I don't know if you can hear me. I, sorry, I, it's Will here. I've, uh, I was just dropping one of my kids at soccer practice. So I've changed from my computer to my phone and I'm back. Um, just a really quick question. So, um, would your technology um, be suitable to be licensed to another country or in another country, uh, such as the UK? Um, I, um, it's, it's the sort of thing that looks very interesting uh, over here. And obviously you've got a very interesting business plan or a investable business plan, a very local focus, obviously on the West coast of the U S is it, is it something that you'd consider um, at this stage um, if there was a sizable project somewhere else where they said, you know what, this, um, this could be a really interesting solution to one of our sort of circularity uh, plans for waste, for energy, et cetera. Oh, Apologies, I've missed some of the presentation on my, my taxi ride with my kids. So, um, the answer is yes. Uh, we're negotiating right now with New Zealand. Um, our basic business model is build, own, and operate. So investors put in money, we build, own, and operate the plants and return uh, investors a very handsome returns, which Chris uh, Fiore can supply you with uh, information on. Now, if we're doing this in another country, we would have a partner in that country that will be actively doing the running of the plant uh, under our direction. We have internet connection where we can take over and uh, fix any discrepancies in how the plant's running at a distance. But uh, our overall plan in other countries is to not try to build on and operate all the plants. We expect to do the first or the first two uh, as as our normal structure, build, own, and operate, and then license out the manufacturer in that country, uh, which lowers the capital um, needs to put a plan up uh, after the first two. So we're in the process of doing that right now in New Zealand, and we're almost to that point now in Australia, uh, where there are large agriculture areas with a lot of waste. The problem is, or I should say the opportunity is, agricultural waste going into landfills ferments and becomes methane, which is roughly 80 times worse as climate change, change gas than, than uh, CO2. So like California has outlawed putting food processing waste in the landfill anymore, the rest of the world is starting to do that too. So it has multiple routes into an economy, not just much lower cost fuel, but also supplying valuable chemical feedstock like pharmaceutical alcohol for making either herbal or traditional uh, Western medicine. So there's a lot of overall pent-up demand right now for alcohol of a high quality. So yes, uh, we're happy to do this in any country. What, what I would add to that, Will, and this is Tom, by the way, is that uh, we're partnered with US Exim Bank and U.S. Exim Bank is here to incentivize manufacturers and to simplify the process of exporting technologies. So if we have an in-country partner who's the majority holder of a, of a project and plant, um, the U.S. Uh, Exim Bank 
will step up with guarantees that are equivalent to about 115% of, of the loan, construction loan and site development uh, costs around a project. So we're very excited. Chris and I are working with uh, Exum right now on a couple of things to export product like sanitizers to the Caribbean or uh, to put one of our plants in another country altogether. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm sorry if this was covered earlier, but what happens if the uh, if if the inputs to your system came from the sort of high chemical ag system, uh, and therefore they're relatively what well, not say impure but not as pure. It's organic waste, but not organic organic waste, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah. So so it, it's fine for us to use con conventional food products, conventional crops that have been you know, treated with chemicals like they do in agriculture. So what happens in our case is in the process of making the alcohol from that material, those chemicals end up in the final product and then are removed in our pharmaceutical uh, module that takes out all the organic chemicals that are not alcohol. So we, uh, so yes, they're there and yes, we collect them all and no, uh, they don't end up in the fuel and they don't end up in any of the products. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, if that's what we have to do to get those chemicals out of the environment, well, there's money well spent on the plant to do that because something's got to get rid of them. And we basically incinerate them into, uh, carbon dioxide and water in our boiler. Awesome. Thank you. I'm sorry, did, are you done? Yes, thank you. Oh, okay. Hey, David. Yes, hi, Peter. How you doing? Things are great down here. Awesome, thank you for your presentation today. Yeah. Um, so quick question, have you done a thorough cost of goods analysis um, for your alcohol-based fuels relative to petroleum-based fuels? Well, uh, it's complex, the answer is yes. But the complexities have to do with the, uh, and, we'll, and we'll have Chris explain a little bit about that, because you have to assume that that oil is an inc most incredibly subsidized fuel that there is. So it's not a level playing field between how subsidized they are and the small subsidies we get, but uh, it's close enough where it makes economic sense uh, and actually, we don't have much of a choice anymore. Those, these, these things have to change. For instance, all the big ships in the world are now being banned from entering port, running on the filthy diesel that they currently use, and they have to switch to another fuel five miles out. So alcohol is a good candidate for that. Let me turn you over to Chris, because he can give you the yeah. details on the cost of goods. Yeah, Let me reframe the question a little bit because um, God willing, we might have a, a more um, eco-friendly administration after November and uh, they may be willing to subsidize these things heavily, whereas the oil subsidies may be um, disappearing rapidly. So that, that would be a wonderful turn of events. Now, if you took out the subsidy aspect of the cost of goods, how does it compare apples to apples? Well, it's it's a it's a if you take out if you make it a level playing field, then it's that's one tenth the cost. Basically, diesel powered um, powered plants generate um, electricity generation plants 
spend about 50 cents per, kilo, for, per kilowatt hour, whereas alcohol used the same capacity as only a nickel. Um, and, and the benefit, by the way, when you add it to directly to fuel um, is not just, the, is not just the, the cost savings, but also the savings on your engine. Because when you don't have carbon deposits going into your engine, your engines last a whole lot longer in addition to the environmental benefit. So, burn, burn yeah. much cleaner, yeah. so Dave, do you want to talk about how alcohol co compares to diesel in terms of burning in cars? Well, uh, and gasoline. Uh, alcohol is, is 99 plus percent pollution free. It is very totally consumed. The common pollutants from gasoline, um, hydrocarbons, carbon monoxide, and nitrous oxides are all part of impartial you know, in, in, you know in, not completely uh, complete combustion. And that's because gasoline and diesel are made out of a, a wide ranging stew of over four or 500 different, um, you know, petroleum byproducts from refinery. And it's impossible to get complete combustion with such a weird mix of boiling points and ignition points. So alcohol is very easy, uh, even with a gasoline car, to hit uh, 99 plus percent pollution free. It's always a riot when I go to the smog station and don't tell them that I'm running on alcohol. They put the probe in the tailpipe and, and then, uh, you know, they're looking at their machine and none of the needles are moving. And so like, like all of us who need to diagnose an electronic item, they hit it, you know, with their hand and, you know, well, that doesn't make it work. And then they go to see if it's plugged in, you know, and about that time I'm, if I'm in a good mood, I'll go ahead and tell them that, by the way, they won't see any pollution because they don't have equipment sensitive enough to measure it. So uh, that's how clean alcohol is. So that's a huge difference right there. And when you're talking about a, an ocean going ship running on bunker diesel versus alcohol, that is a serious piece of capital equipment that a tripling of that life is worth millions and millions of dollars. So it is true of all of our cars too. Amazing. Think, with, go ahead. With, with that, with that efficiency, translate over to um, automobile engines. Oh, absolutely. Okay. With, already, the EPA has done a great job, uh, both in the '80s and in um, the Carter uh, Carter administration during Obama, to show that we can get um, emissions. Not only can we get emissions unmeasurable, but we can also get up to 22 percent better mileage than gasoline with slightly redesigned engines to take advantage of alcohol's 106 octane. We don't have that kind of quality gasoline for sale anymore, and, but, uh, but it is possible to make a dual fuel vehicle that will uh, run on gasoline when it has to, and those already exist. You, you can put whatever you want in the tank, the computer adjusts between gasoline and alcohol, but these more modern engines, which the EPA is moving toward high compression engines, can actually um, get better mileage than uh, than gasoline by 20%, 22%. I like to say that there's a reason why dragsters run on alcohol. It's because it's more powerful and it, and it preserves the engines for the mechanics. And so anyway, right. enough said. Thank you so much. And then I think, uh, Julian, there's a question in the chat that I was gonna ask anyway. So if you wanna address that, that'd be great. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, feel free to, to jump in as well. But the question in the chat is, is the technology and process explained scalable to commercial levels? Um, and what be the key impediments um, besides financing? Well, let's see, commercial, how do we prove that? Well, we could go to uh, Nazi Germany. They had uh, 77,000 regional scale distilleries that uh, fermented and distilled potatoes for fuel. So they did that and they prosecuted World War II without any oil, because Germany doesn't have oil, they just have coal. And, uh, you know, I think that's as much as World War II is kind of an ugly, picture it is a gigantic demand of energy and germany was able to supply its whole war effort with it it's also fairly terrorist proof the united states terrorizing germany during that war had to bomb seventy-seven thousand alcohol distilleries so uh you know if we're worried about terrorists coming from the other direction to one of our countries it's nice to have your fuel distribution or production spread out can't be monkeyed with but yeah it's there's very little uh, that you can possibly posit that alcohol isn't better than gasoline. It was the first auto fuel before gasoline was ever invented. It's by its nature decentralized and democratic. It, you only make it where the sun falls. And also, by the way, we can compartmentalize our plants in five million gallon um, uh, containers, that, or, or I should say containers that carry five million gallon plants that are modular, and we can set them up to whatever somebody needs, you know, whether it's five, 10, 15, 20 million gallons at any given location. We can send a container with modular, that's just plug and play. And it's even down to one million gallons per year. We have smaller sizes too, but... Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to like change the world here, right? So we, you have to, you can't have something that's built on site. You have to have something you can knock out in a factory, have it containerized, ship to the site, put it up, and three weeks later be making, making fuel. And you know, I got to give it to the oil companies who invented that thinking. Because when you want to fight a war, well, you lay a pipeline with crude oil in it and you put mini dis uh, distilleries or refineries along it and you keep tanking, you know, tanking up uh, all the war machines with the fuel you make down that pipeline. And that's how we invaded Iraq, is we literally laid a pipeline and we're moving 15 million gallons per hour of fuel to power all the war machines. So, you know, the modular method of setting up gas stations that are built out of shipping containers and also uh, doing rough refining uh, is all modularized. It, people have been doing this a while, but we just refine this to be used with alcohol and it's incredibly uh, less capital intensive to build this way. One quarter of the cost of building on site when we're able to do it in containerized uh, modules. Mm -hmm. Thank, thank you so much, David. Yeah, Akash, go ahead. So just a follow-up on that, um, David. Um, if I understood you right, basically there's no technological impediments. The technology is there. I guess all that's needed is having a level playing field and a willingness. Is that would be fair to summarize? Well, making alcohol is mankind's second oldest profession. So I think we don't have to worry about patenting the process. 
uh, and there are no technological barriers, there are opportunities to overcome certain things that would open up wider ranges of feedstocks. And, you know, there's a lot of opportunities, but there's nothing stopping us from making all the alcohol we need for the entire planet right now. There's no limitation to the limitations around feedstock supply. I mean, we've got kelp if we need it. You know, uh, there, the cattails are 7,500 gallons per acre compared to corn at 200 gallons an acre. So we have incredible ability to ramp up uh, feedstocks to supply these. And what do farmers do? Show them a crop they can get money for, they'll grow it for you. And we've got some of the best farmers in the world here. So there's no raw material. This, this, well, you got to worry about one thing. You know, the sun is going to burn out in four and a half billion years. And at that point, we'll have a problem. <laughs> so that means we have quite, quite some time. Thank yeah. you so much, David, for this lively presentation, for all the insights, for the details. Is there any other questions that are, that are around as we've like, um, you know, a uh, little bit over 10, 10 a.m. here on the Pacific side? Peter, anything else you'd love to add? No, thank you. Just lots okay. of gratitude. I have one last thing to add. If you're talking about trying to make the world regenerative, that it has to regenerate using an energy source. And that has to be the sun. Because that is, even the sun is only regenerative for four and a half billion years. But I'll take that definition. But what I'm trying to say is any other plan about how we're going to regenerate the earth starts with where the energy comes from. Because without that, whatever we do, we'll be polluting as much as we restore if we're using fossil fuels. This is the core of what's needed to solve the problems of the planet. And I'm, we're not saying we're the only fuel, but gosh, we're really cheap. We know how to do it. And everybody knows what it is. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for this presentation. Thank you, Chris and uh, Tom and David as well, and uh, everyone who's joined today. Uh, so much gratitude for all of you. Make sure to bookmark this call for next week in your calendars. Um, there is a link that we can drop in the chat as well, uh, planetpositive.ventures/weekly, And um, yeah, make sure to share it so our group continues to grow. We're at a very beautiful, very intimate setting at the moment. Thank you so much, Samantha, again, for sharing the meditation. Thank you, Jim. And uh, yeah, hope to see you all next week. Thank you. I hope you truly enjoyed this one. You took some insights away, something you can apply for your own life or something you want to share with a friend. If you truly enjoy Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, the episodes I make and the guests and interview partners I feature, make sure to subscribe, leave a review on the podcast on your favorite app on Spotify or Apple podcast, share it with a friend. And if you feel inspired, Make sure to support this podcast. There are plenty of ways to get in touch with me. Leave a monthly recurring financial support on anchor.fm or simply in the show notes of this episode, wherever you're tuning into. This podcast is really just about to get started featuring, showcasing, and gathering some of the most badass planetary change makers that are making this the regenerative decade on planet Earth. Wherever you are in the world, have yourself a stellar day.